ditto, shall we stand and sing. <laughs> that was good stuff. It's good stuff. I'm going to ask if you would to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. And we're going to put some scripture background behind some of the things that Jeff said. But I love it when, when someone that's a part of the family speaks truth and with passion about what the Lord is doing among them. So, I want to thank Jeff. The mission of this church, not decided by me, you guys worked on this long before I got here, the mission of this church is to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Jesus. And the focus of doing that is out of the overflow of God's love and grace. Well, as you look at those things, I forgot my clicker because I was so excited about what Jeff said. As you look at those things, I want you to think about a few things in particular. And the best way I know to do that is to focus on some scriptures that speak power into that message. So we're going to read from 2 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 10. This is Paul's last known writing in the New Testament. He finishes it by saying, my time is about over and I've finished my race and I've run my course and I'm waiting for God to come because my life is about to be ended, martyred in prison. Timothy, get to me as quickly as you can. Try to get here before winter. Bring my coat. Bring my parchments. Get here soon. But he begins the letter with these words. 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. I thank my God, whom I serve as my ancestors did. I serve with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. And I am now persuaded also lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me who is his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God has saved us. God has called us to a holy life. And he has done this not because of anything we have done but because of his purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought immortality and life to light through the gospel. How could Paul ask for such a sacrifice from us, Eunice asked her mother. 
Lois replied. But that's what we raised Timothy to do. To live passionately for the Holy One, to not be timid or shy. Yes, Eunice responded. But Mom, you may never see him again if he goes with Paul. At your age, he takes off, who, who knows, when he will return. Lois looked at her daughter with loving eyes said, or if he will return. You remember what happened the first time Paul was here in Lystra. You remember that well, don't you? He was stoned and he was left for dead. That's the man we're sending our Timothy off to work with. To put his life on the line for the gospel. No, my. Eunice realized Timothy's future wasn't just built around her old years and length of life. I'm not sure I want him to go with Paul. I'm not ready to lose our boy. Lois looked at her daughter and said, Listen to me, dear daughter. Listen. We raised him to be like Daniel and Daniel's three friends. Remember what we said to him all through the years? Eunice replied, Yes, Mom. Dare to be Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to make your purpose clear. Dare to make it known. Yes. Yes, Eunice conceded. Our little boy is not a little boy any longer, even though he's just a teenager. It's time for him to go. To live with Paul and learn to live a life of unashamed faith, no matter the cost. We will be committed to nurturing the faith of young families, youth and children, while supporting the Christian family and marriage. That's an important commitment, and it has some subpoints that are equally important. We will equip, protect, and encourage enduring Christian marriages. We will support strengthen loving, uh, and strengthen loving Christian families. We will develop the faith of children and teens in partnership with the family. We will create a cohesive plan to nurture the faith of children and teens with the specific goal of them being a lifelong follower of Jesus. The fourth one has got some meat to it. It's got some ways to hold the leaders of this church and the church family accountable. You are a church that cares deeply for children. I saw it in the survey. It was repeated old and, uh, over and over. Those that are wor older are worried that the children, even though they may not be physically their children, their church children, they're worried that the world and the worldly values will encroach upon them and steal their hearts from Jesus. Those that are families with children, very much in tune with the things that go on in the children's ministry and the youth ministry. So for me, this commitment for your emphasis comes at an important time. So I'm going to speak to you, and I'm not going to hold back this morning. I'm going to try to tell you the truth. I'm going to try to tell you the truth straight on. So I want us to take a look at 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 10 is the New Testament family statement of faith, but 
it's built on one that goes back a lot further. I want you to realize that we'll get to it a little bit later, and that's, that's Deuteronomy 6. When you look at 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 10, I want you to notice something right off, and I'm going to ask you to have your Bibles open. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 1, 3. Because when we start talking about passing on faith, we want to know how do you do it. And Paul lays out a plan as he talks about what happened to Timothy. And the first part of this plan is no matter how strong the family of faith may be, young people need mentors in the church. A family by itself is not enough. God gives us a church family, a spiritual family. That's why what you say, how you act, how you support, what you do with your children, whether they're your physical children or not, is so crucial and so important. I have a good friend. If I gave you his name, everybody would know him. He's recognized as one of the most well-known preachers in our brotherhood. And he talks about where that first seed was planted in his heart to be a preacher. And he was in kindergarten. And the little conservative church of Christ where he grew up, they put the first grade and the kindergarten together because there were only six of them. There were five girls in first grade, and there was this guy that was a kindergartner. And they ganged up on him. And so after Bible class, everybody left, and he went back in the room, turned off the lights, and sat down in a chair. And he's doing his best not to cry. And he talks about there was this big, huge guy with big hands. That guy was actually about this tall, I know, because he was my granddaddy. And this preacher was just a boy. And he's sitting in Bible class doing his best not to cry on one of those little bitty chairs, you know, that kids have. And G-Daddy, that's my granddaddy, came down and pulled one of those chairs and sat in front of him and put his hand on his shoulder. And he said, Women folk can be a bit hard on us, can't they? <laughs> and he looked up and he said, Don't let that trouble you. I've been watching you. You love Jesus, don't you? And he said, Yeah. He said, something inside me just tells me you're going to be one of God's ministers one of these days. My granddad had huge hands, but he's a little bitty guy. But that preacher can tell you that was what awakened God's call for him to preach. My mom did that for me, but my fourth grade Bible class teacher on Wednesday nights who taught Acts, and he did chalk talks. He was an artist. He captured my heart. You see, we carry a dyslexic gene among the wear boys, and we're, we're much more visual than we are linear textual. That's the first time I realized that I could see the Bible in color. And his drawings helped me understand that it could come alive if I just imagine it with my mind. Both my mom and that guy, and a Bible class teacher in Conroe named Rosemary, they're the ones that first called me to preach. 
You have no idea how important it is. So let me tell you a little secret. If older people in the church would spend less time worrying and whining about what's going on with the kids and more time picking out a family and praying for that family, everyone by name, every single day for a year, a whole lot more of God's stuff gets opened up. Because as you begin to pray for that family, you know what happens? You begin to get interested in that family. My children were part of a great blessing. Our youth minister, Rick McCall, just felt convicted in the spirit that the only way we were going to get the corner turned in Austin in an environment that was pretty hostile to faith for teenagers was to get a group of people that would pray every single day for one kid. He didn't tell the kids. In the first year, they didn't know there was somebody praying for them. Each of these people made a two-year commitment. And they prayed for that kid and his or her family for the first year. At the end of the first year, you could already see some momentum developing in the teenager group. You could see changes in the lives of kids. You could see changes in the lives of families. Second year, as it kicked off, he said, there's been somebody praying for you every single day. They're going to continue to do that. And at the end of this year, you're going to get to meet them. Now, I've shared with you before, my kids were blessed. My son graduated with 53, other, with 53 in his senior high school class at church. My daughter had 47. That wasn't because of any great program. That's because a bunch of people prayed for those kids and those families. So I'm challenging you, if you don't have kids at home, you ask Whitney or you ask Bruce or you just go through the directory and you pick out a family and start praying every single day in 2017 for that family and those kids. Pray for them to be people of faith. Pray for them to be like Daniel that some of us are studying in our Bible class on Sunday mornings. And sooner or later, God's going to give you the opportunity to step in that life and just offer encouragement. Be a blessing to support that family. No matter how strong the family of faith may be, young people need mentors. Paul was that to Timothy. He asked him to do the unthinkable as a teenager to come with him on a mission trip. And he knew that, he, that Timothy knew and that Timothy's mom Eunice and Timothy's grandmom Lois, he knew, they all knew that he had been stoned and left for dead and he was asking a big, a big deal because they knew what the stakes were. But they were more concerned with Timothy being faithful to Jesus and being with him forever than they were about being helicopter parents and grandparents. Powerful message. Second principle. I don't know why we uh, stop there, but we get to get things in technicolor this morning number two instilling faith is still the primary responsibility of the home when you look at verse five what do you see you see a mixed marriage god's never concerned about mixed marriages racially in the bible 
his biggest concern is mixed marriages in faith. This was one of those marriages. Lois had married a Gentile. But she trained her son to be fully Jewish. With the help of her mother, Lois, Eunice trained Timothy to be a person of faith, even though his father, for her, as, as far as we know, was never fully bought in to the Jewish way of life. That way, when that family came to Christ and recognized Jesus as Messiah, they were together. And Timothy learned the things that he learned about Scripture from his mother and his grandmother. Later, when Paul talks about the Scripture being inspired in 2 Timothy 3, we always start that passage a little too soon. We read 16 and 17, All Scripture is inspired of God, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training the person of God in righteousness so that they can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's a great passage. But you go back a verse or two and he says, Timothy, remember the word that you received because you know those from whom you have learned it. You know the quality of their life and the power of their faith. Now what changed them was this word. And when we forget to put that element in that says parents have this strong influence, this powerful influence over their kids... Even when they're teenagers, every poll, as long as I've been in ministry, that's been taken of teenagers in the U.S. has said the most powerful influence in their life are their parents, or one parent. Instilling faith is still the primary responsibility of the home. The church supports and supplements, but it can't do it by itself. In fact, we've got to realize that the church can't hire enough workers to plant faith in our kids' hearts. It ultimately is going to come from home. That's the principle of Deuteronomy 6 that we're going to look at in a second. Principle number three. We must not be afraid of our children taking risk living out their faith. Last Sunday morning, I sat at a table with a guy that was youth minister in the youth group as they were going on a youth trip, going into New Mexico across the pass. Car coming, our truck coming the other way lost the trailer, and that trailer wheeled around and raked across the side of that bus and killed a number of those kids in his youth group. parents' greatest fear. I remember, uh, I remember uh, when we had made a commitment as a church to send out 400 missionaries into the field at Westover Hills. The very first team we sent were two young men. And about halfway through, a group of people on campaign went for a swim in the waters of Recife, Brazil, two girls got in trouble and one of them, one of these two young men, a great swimmer, swam out, got them to safety, but the surf slammed his head into a rock and he disappeared, was killed. That was our first rattle out of the box making a major missions move. Could have destroyed it. That's our worst fear. 
And it's sad that that's our worst fear. Our worst fear ought to be our kids growing up with a mediocre faith or no faith at all. We bore our kids to death. We made them think church is sitting on their buns in a pew. And that doesn't do it for them. They got to know that this is the launching pad. This isn't the goal. They got to know that a devotional with the teens is not the goal. The goal is to live passionately for Jesus to take risks. That's why it's so important that some of you have already started taking your kids on mission trips. Because somewhere along the way, we have to believe that last statement, verse 10 in 2 Timothy 1, that Jesus Christ has come and brought immortality and life to light through the gospel. And that this life here is just a small part of what life is for us as Christians. And we'd rather have them forever in the presence of Jesus and risk losing them now because they're willing to live out their faith in passionate ways. That's the story. Because if you ain't got something worth dying for, you ain't got nothing worth living for. That's just the truth. And we've got to give our kids something worth dying for, taking risks for. So, we will be committed. We, are, we will be committed to nurturing the faith of young families, you children, while supporting Christian family marriage. But what are we going to do? How are we going to do that? Well, I want you to jump from the Old, New Testament to the Old Testament. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 6. You know this passage, and I know our time is short, but we've got to get this in. When we got this window of opportunity to talk about faith and family, we can't mess it up. So Deuteronomy 6, beginning with verse 4. This is called the Shema. The Jew, Jewish family said it at least once every morning together as a family. That's why you've got a sheet of paper and you're going to be challenged as a family, whether you're a single person and you have a roommate or whether you're alone or whether you're an older couple or whether you're a family. I want to encourage everybody in your family over this next week and think about it for the next year to get up every morning and once at least say this together. Here's the Jewish version. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Three key words, heart. This has got to be on our heart, loving God with all that we are. It's got to be on our heart. It's got to be the thing that moves us. It's got to be the thing that motivates us. It's got to be the primary thing in our life. Stilling faith is crucial. And it's only going to happen if we're bought in from the heart. How do you know what's on your heart? What do you pray for about your kids? Good grades, good marriage, successful career. What do you worry about most for your kids and your grandkids? What do you spend most of your time and money doing with your kids and your grandkids? Ah, there's that last one. So I'm going to ask it again. What do you spend most of your money 
on with your kids or your grandkids? Does it have to do with matters of faith? You remember what Jesus said? Where we put our money is where our heart is. Our kids know what's most important to us by where we spend our money. So where's our heart? Secondly, it has to do with talk. What do you talk about? And, and if you go back and, and you look at that passage, I want you to look at all the places he talks about talk. When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, or when you're in the car, when you lie down, when you get up. It's all-encompassing. Our talk has to be Jesus' talk. We live in an age where everybody's got something in their ears all the time. Or their nose in the video screen in the back of the seat in front of them. We've got to take a Sabbath. There has to be an understanding. I know some younger folks are going to be ready to run me out of town and go get your preacher right now. But we've got to have a moratorium, a little bit of time, where we just talk as a family. It's got to be stuff that uh, is important to us. Part of the way you do that is you listen until you're invited in a conversation. It's called a teachable moment or until something happens. The other part of that is to realize that the way we talk to each other as husband and wife is overheard by our kids. And how we talk to each other, that shapes how our son's going to treat his wife and daughters and how our daughters are going to speak to their husband and their sons and daughters. They learn that from us. That's the background track of their lives. And so how we speak to each other is important as how we speak to them. And the third are symbols. What are you more concerned about, the logo on your clothes? Or the make of your car? Or the neighborhood you live in or the high school kids go to? Or the faith involvement of your children and your grandchildren and things that matter to Jesus? I know that's getting into meddling. You know, you've, you've heard about the little old lady, right? Think I told you about the little old lady? Did a little snuff, kept a little snuff right here. She came to church that way. Kind of helped her stay awake during church. And she'd come by the preacher every night of the gospel meeting and say, Preacher, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. That was a great message. Then he had a sermon on Smoking, drinking, dipping, and chewing, and not going around with girls that were doing. And she caught him on the way out of church and said, You gone from preaching to meddling. <laughs> so I know I'm meddling. But you guys are so good. And as Jeff said, you want to go from good to great. And you're so close. Symbols are important. What does our house say to our kids that's most important? Symbols are important, but they've got to be consistent with what we are and what we believe. I, I remember a church I work with in El Paso, and I was so impressed because there was this big honking Bible on the communion table. You know, back in the days when we had do this in remembrance of me and big honking table and this... Big, huge Bible, and the pages were yellowed. 
And I was young and idealistic and going to be a preacher. And I thought, man, this is great. And then one day, I went to that Bible and I noticed that that was a water stain. And I looked up and there had been a leak. I don't know if somebody put it there or it, but over the years it had yellowed the pages and they were brown down in the center. But you get about 20, 30 pages down on either side. There's just a brown spot at the center, but all the pages were literally white. The Bible was just a symbol, but didn't really mean that much. So, in my idealism, my first sermon was on a guarantee on how your children will never have faith. You be a mediocre Christian. I guarantee you that's the best way for your children to grow up without faith. Be a mediocre Christian. I still believe that. I was a whopping 19 years old. I preached my guts out. My mom said a couple of times, you know how I get my arms going sometimes, that my arm got out here and I looked at it kind of like, how did that get out here? And I pulled it back in. <laughs> I had six responses to my first sermon on how to be good parents and all six of them were teenagers. But one of the things I learned walking away from that is I was going to do things differently as a family. And we were blessed to go to a church, and it grew so fast. I mean, we went from 350 to 850 in about two and a half years, and there were a bunch of young families. It was so exciting, so wonderful, and our kids had kids that were their friends, all that. And then our kids got to hit an elementary age, and, you know, there was music and dance and sports and t-ball and pre-t-ball and soccer for four-year-olds and all sorts of crazy stuff like that and so one of the guys in our group and there were about 40 couples said let's make a commitment to each other let's make a commitment that we're not going to allow our kids to do any extracurricular thing but one at a time no more than one extracurricular thing at a time some people guffed at that because they already had kids doing two or three things. It was the greatest thing that ever happened. Our kids only did one extracurricular thing at a time. I look around and I saw all my friends and I see my kids and their friends and I see folks today. And we shouldn't be surprised when the wife has an affair with the baseball coach because she's with the baseball coach more than she's with her husband because he's busy taking another kid to another sporting event so that they can go to a select thing on the weekends, miss church, and be involved in all that. Boy, that's, I've really gone to meddling now, hadn't I? But you have to understand, I spend most weekends in hotels with families spending hundreds of dollars for select sports every single week. And when I share some of this stuff, people say, well, my kids are going to miss out. Let me tell you what happened to our kids. Andrea at 11 was an incredible uh, a gymnast. And her family got a house visit from Marta and Bella Caroli and said, I guarantee you we can have your daughter win medals in the Olympics if you'll just send her to Houston. 11 years old. What's more, we send our athletes to the Church of Christ 
school down there. That's their school. That's where they go. So they got a bunch of families together and prayed about it. And they decided no. That it was their job to raise their daughter, not Bella Caroli. That they'd only have one chance to lay down some things in her heart. So now she's a mom of several kids, a great Christian mother, really involved in living for Jesus. And it crimped her a lot along the way. She was all-region four straight years in softball. She was an All-American in high school. Brett Robin, you can go look him up, one of Mac Brown's first signees at University of Texas. He's the son of our doctor. I saw him grow up. I coached him in soccer. His parents shared the same commitment. Brett was MVP at the Holiday Bowl for the University of Texas two straight years. He was All-State football at Westlake High School. The best thing about it, the second year they were in the Holiday Bowl, they did a five-minute feature on how his dad took him for four weeks to do medical missions in Africa because of his faith. My daughter, she suffered too. She was one of three kids for the first time to be awarded Christian All-American at her Christian school. The other one was our youth minister's son. I'm not telling you exactly how to run your family, but I'm telling you, you got to look at your time and your money and see where you're spending it. That's what they're going to know because this stuff is not something that's going to just happen. It's got to be done with attention. Time is short. I'm an old dude now. It's hard for me to believe. I'm an old dude now. I'm 62. Now, some of you are going to say, well, that's just, you're just getting started. But anybody under 35 thinks 62 is older than dirt and that I, you know, I was around when the earth's crust began to cool. Let's just be honest. And I don't know really what it's like with kids. But I do, because I've been involved with them my whole life. Because I learned it from my daddy. And my dad impressed on us the urgency of living for Jesus. Because he carried deep guilt with him. He had four buddies that they ran with each other from junior high on. They were in high school. They were going to wait and sow their wild oats, and then they were going to come to Christ, and they were going to all get baptized the same Sunday. But one night driving away from the drive-in, my dad's best buddy and one of those four guys that was waiting on my dad to become a Christian did what he liked to do, drove really, really fast, hit a patch of something, and hit a bridge of Buckman. And my dad had him die in his arms trying to stop the bleeding from his jugular vein on the way to the hospital. Never confessing Jesus and being baptized. It changed my dad forever. Reminded him that he had to be urgent about passing on his faith to his friends and especially to his kids. And so I'm telling you as parents, time goes by more quickly than you realize. And if you don't place Jesus first now, 
it's going to get harder and harder and harder as the stuff accumulates and builds around you. When I was in high school, my sophomore year, I remember standing on the 17th of Rolling Hills Country Club. It's right near Cowboy Stadium. It's the golf course right there at Cooper and I-30. 17th tee, Gary Perkins. Gary, I really want you to know about Jesus. Can I share some things about Jesus? Took everything I had in my heart to do it. But I remembered my dad's story. And Gary said, Phil, I know you love Jesus and I want to live like you, but I'm young and I can do that when I'm older. Three months later, during typing class in high school, somebody walked in and asked me to come to the door and said Gary had been killed in a motorcycle accident. He was riding on the back of a motorcycle driven by a Church of Christ friend of mine on the way to buy pot. Unsaved. I share that because matters of faith are more important than any other thing in our kids' lives. Nothing compares. And the persons that have the most influence are mom and daddy and grandma and granddaddy. And so all I know to do is say, sick them. Sick them. Get after it. Make that your highest priority. I'm sorry I've gone over time, but I'm not sorry for a single thing I've said this morning. Because this church wants to be a great church to foster faith in children. So make your commitment to do it together. Make commitment for a place to start. In the, sheet, in the seat, you find uh, the Jesus Shema. You know what it is. You've seen what it is. I encourage you to take it home, put it on the fridge. And once a day, at least once a day as a family, say that together out loud and claim this house belongs to Jesus. If your house doesn't belong to Jesus, boy, this is a great time to turn that around. We're going to offer you an opportunity to speak to elders as uh, they sit around you or at the back or at the front uh, and let Jesus be Lord of your house as we stand and sing.